Section 104 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 135 London, March 18th, Old Style, 1751 My dear friend, I acquainted you in a former letter that I had brought a bill into the House of Lords for correcting and reforming our present calendar, which is the Julian, and for adopting the Gregorian. I will now give you a more particular account of that affair, from which reflections will naturally occur to you that I hope may be useful, and which I fear you have not made. It was notorious that the Julian calendar was erroneous, and had overcharged the solar year with eleven days. Pope Gregory the Thirteenth corrected this error. His reformed calendar was immediately received by all the Catholic powers of Europe, and afterward adopted by all the Protestant ones except Russia, Sweden, and England. It was not, in my opinion, very honorable for England to remain, in a gross and avowed error, especially in such company. The inconveniency of it was likewise felt by all those who had foreign correspondences, whether political or mercantile. I determined, therefore, to attempt the Reformation. I consulted the best lawyers and the most skilful astronomers, and we cooked up a bill for that purpose. But then my difficulty began. I was to bring in this bill, which was necessarily composed of law-jargon and astronomical calculations, to both which I am an utter stranger. However, it was absolutely necessary to make the House of Lords think that I knew something of the matter, and also to make them believe that they knew something of it themselves, which they do not. For my own part, I could just as soon have talked Celtic or Slavonian to them as astronomy, and they would have understood me full as well. So I resolved to do better than speak to the purpose, and to please instead of informing them. I gave them, therefore, only an historical account of calendars, from the Egyptian down to the Gregorian, amusing them now and then with little episodes. But I was particularly attentive to the choice of my words, to the harmony and roundness of my periods, to my elocution, to my action. This succeeded, and will ever succeed. They thought I informed, because I pleased them, and many of them said that I had made the whole very clear to them, when God knows I had not even attempted it. Lord Macclesfield, who had the greatest share in forming the bill, and who is one of the greatest mathematicians and astronomers in Europe, spoke afterward with infinite knowledge, and all the clearness that so intricate a matter would admit of but as his words, his periods, and his utterance were not near so good as mine, the preference was most unanimously, though most unjustly, given to me. This will ever be the case. Every numerous assembly is mob. Let the individuals who compose it be what they will. Mere reason and good sense is never to be talked to a mob. Their passions, their sentiments, their senses, and their seeming interests are alone to be applied to. Understanding they have collectively none, but they have ears and eyes, which must be flattered and seduced, and this can only be done by eloquence, tuneful periods, graceful action, and all the various parts of oratory. When you come into the House of Commons, if you imagine that speaking plain and unadorned sense and reason will do your business, you will find yourself most grossly mistaken. As a speaker, you will be ranked only according to your eloquence, and by no means according to your matter, Everybody knows the matter almost alike, but few can adorn it. I was early convinced of the importance and powers of eloquence, and from that moment I applied myself to it. I resolved not to utter one word, even in common conversation, that should not be the most expressive and the most elegant that the language could supply me with for that purpose. 
by which means I have acquired such a certain degree of habitual eloquence, that I must now really take some pains, if I would express myself very inelegantly. I want to inculcate this known truth into you, which you seem by no means to be convinced of yet, that ornaments are at present your only objects. Your sole business now is to shine, not to weigh. Weight without luster is lead. You had better talk trifles elegantly to the most trifling women, than coarse and elegant sense to the most solid man. You had better return a dropped fan genteelly than give a thousand pounds awkwardly, and you had better refuse a favor gracefully than to grant it clumsily. Manner is all in everything. It is by manner only that you can please, and consequently rise. All your Greek will never advance you from secretary to envoy, or from envoy to ambassador, but your address, your manner, your air, if good, very probably may. Marcel can be of much more use to you than Aristotle. I would, upon my word, much rather that you had Lord Bolingbroke's style and eloquence in speaking and writing than all the learning of the Academy of Sciences, the Royal Society, and the two universities united. Having mentioned Lord Bolingbroke's style, which is undoubtedly infinitely superior to anybody's, I would have you read his works, which you have, over and over again, with particular attention to his style. Transcribe, imitate, emulate it if possible. That would be of real use to you in the House of Commons, in negotiations, in conversation. With that you may justly hope to please, to persuade, to seduce, to impose, and you will fail in those articles in proportion as you fall short of it. Upon the whole, lay aside during your year's residence at Paris all thoughts of all that dull fellows call solid, and exert your utmost care to acquire what people of fashion call shining. Prenez l'éclat et le brillant d'un galant homme. Among the commonly called little things, to which you do not attend, your handwriting is one, which is indeed shamefully bad and illiberal. It is neither the hand of a man of business, nor of a gentleman, but of a truant schoolboy. As soon, therefore, as you have done with Abbe Nollet, pray get an excellent writing-master, since you think that you cannot teach yourself to write what hand you please, and let him teach you to write a genteel, legible, liberal hand, and quick, not the hand of a procureur or a writing-master, but that sort of hand in which the first commis in foreign bureaus commonly write. For I tell you truly, that were I Lord Abomarle, nothing should remain in my bureau written in your present hand. From hand to arms the transition is natural. Is the carriage and motion of your arms so too? The motion of the arms is the most material part of a man's air, especially in dancing. The feet are not near so material. If a man dances well from the waist upward, wears his hat well, and moves his head properly, he dances well. Do the women say that you dress well? For that is necessary too for a young fellow. Have you un goût vive, or passion for anybody? I do not ask for whom, and Iphigenia would both give you the desire and teach you the means to please. In a fortnight or three weeks you will see Sir Charles Hotham at Paris, in his way to Toulouse, where he is to stay a year or two. Pray be very civil to him, but do not carry him into company, except presenting him to Lord Abomarle, for as he is not to stay at Paris above a week, we do not desire that he should taste of that dissipation. You may show him a play and an opera. Adieu, my dear child. End of section 104. Read by Professor Heather and by. 
For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.